So with me, join in. It's uh, Revelation 5, verses 1 to 14, the whole chapter. Is it up here? It is. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And, the one, uh, and one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which, were, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and, uh, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on, earth, on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven on, on the earth, or sorry, on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. It's, it's a powerful chapter. So, in fact, this is the chapter that I was saved reading this chapter many, many moons ago. Um, actually, not that many, given the fact that this is a 75-year-old church. <laughs> it was only a blink ago. So, chapter 5 of Revelation there's two ways we can look at it, well, there's many ways, but at least two. One is understanding how it sits within the 22 chapters of the book of Revelation. And in the whole scope of things, from a literary perspective, it's very important because it introduces this scroll. And the scroll is very important because chapters 6 to 19 are going to tell you what's written on the scroll. So it's actually incredibly important from chapter 5 onwards all you're getting to chapter 19 is exactly what is written on this scroll. So you're being shown all that. So it's an important chapter. But then when we consider it for us, we're seeing something that I've said, I feel like, almost every week. Revelation continually uses the word behold, behold. And look at what he says here. The angel says to John, weep no more, behold. If you and I are not going to weep, we must behold. We have to see what John is trying to show us. We have to see this vision and accept it, or else we will be prone to weeping. We'll be prone to all sorts of terrible things. And in this chapter, you see John going through a progression. John moves from despair to hope and to joy. And that prog progression happens very quickly, almost instantaneously. And as we follow that, progression from those three stages, you're going to see each one is accompanied by a different understanding of who Christ is. And depending on how you see Christ will determine on whether you get stuck in this place of despair, 
or not knowing him at all, or if you're, you're in this place of hope or in joy. And you're going to see how things move along in this chapter. So we're going to look at that, despair, hope, and joy. So let's jump in to despair. So it's the first four verses of this chapter. Here's a quick summary, just in, in layman's terms. John, we've just seen, has seen this vision from last week with the throne at the center with God on it. And he notices that in the right hand, actually in the Greek it says on the right side, it doesn't say hand, but that's okay, we'll, we'll go with right hand. In the right hand of the one on the throne, God, there is a scroll. And on the scroll, written on front and back, it's important, because scrolls weren't normally written on both sides. But the reason it's written on both sides is to make sure that you know that whatever is on there, nothing can be added to it. It's filled. There's no room for anything else. It's complete. Um, and when, when he sees that, then this angel, this mighty angel cries out, and he asks, who out there in the entire universe, in all creation, has the, the ability, the worth, it's literally the word for economic worth, who's valuable enough to come and open these seals? And nobody can be found. And as a result, John breaks down. He, ter- he weeps terribly. The Greek is very emphatic. He weeps. What we need to figure out first is this despair. Why is he in such despair? So to know that, you need to know what was written on the scroll and why it matters if it's not open. Because this is why John is weeping. So first, what is written on it? Uh, I have literally not read one person who said anything different than what I'm going to tell you. But I'll give you that there's a few people who say different things, but ultimately everybody settles on the same thing we think is written on these scrolls. So some will say, well, is it scripture? Maybe, but not likely. I'll explain why. Is it the book of life? Is it just the list of everybody who's saved and who isn't and so on? Um, Probably not. Is it a legal document? Is it God coming and saying, I'm indicting you. You are are being held accountable here. Well, if that's what it is, then we have to explain, again, lots of explaining to do. Instead, what it looks like is happening here, and we get this from other scriptures, is what's written on this scroll is God's, okay, big term, eschatological plan. In other words, God has written out what is going to happen in history. Like it or not, I'm sorry to say angers people, you and I are predestined. History is, fi- is fixed. And it's written on this scroll. And we know that this is what is there because in Daniel 12, the last time you hear about the scroll, Daniel, it says, and I think we have it put up on the screen, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the end of time. And John picks up on this and Jesus says, here's that scroll. It's been sealed up. All the plan I had, I wasn't, I'm not releasing it. But when the time comes, I will open the scroll. And so he comes, and we know that this is his plan for everything, because if you read chapter 6 to 19, you see what is on the scroll is God's plan for everything. It's everything. All of creation, all the meaning, all of it is there, which is why scholars like Daryl Johnson can say that the scroll contains the full account of what God in his sovereign will has determined as the destiny of the world. So that's what's on there. And it's sealed with seven seals. Again, you're getting used to the imagery now, symbolism. Seven is perfect, complete, meaning what is in here is complete and perfect, this plan. And it is only to be opened by the one to whom it is addressed. So we know that much right off the set, what it is. Now, why does it matter if it's opened or not? So the way to understand why John is weeping, let's look at things at um, how you read a story. If you've ever read Shakespeare, uh, little known fact, Shakespeare didn't put in his plays, act one, two, three, four, five. Somebody added those after. Shakespeare just wrote the plays. 
But what we look, when you see Shakespeare, you realize he did something almost all writers do, is they follow a structure of five acts. And the stories are linear. You see, we, we think of their stories and our lives as having a beginning and an end and leading to something. They're linear. They're going in a direction. And so in act one of a story, you're introduced to the characters and the scene. Act two, you get the trouble. Okay, here's the, here's the background story that threatens to bubble up and make a mess of the whole, whole family or whatever. Act three is the climax, the pinnacle. And at that point, all heck breaks loose. Right? The story falls apart. And then act four is the fallout from that trouble. And then act five is glorious. You see, because at act five, there is resolution. The villains are unmasked. The victims are, are vindicated. Um, all the reasons for the confusion and the pain are revealed. It's good. It's glorious. It's hopeful. And we, it's not just books and stories that go this. You and I think of our lives this way. We think of our lives as being, I mean, probably because it, we are finite, we're born and we die. And as a result, humans have historically and always, even atheists, will have to admit, even if they don't like it, that we think about our lives building to something. There's an end, and at the end, something must happen. Some sort of resolution, some sort of well done or poorly done, or some sort of verdict. And one of the, the best examples I found of this was in a playwright, the guy who wrote Death of a Salesman, Arthur Miller. If you don't know Arthur Miller, he was married to Marilyn Monroe when she eventually committed suicide. And he wrote a play that nobody likes called After the Fall. And it was very raw. It was about his relationship with Marilyn Monroe. And he says some things that are not very pleasant, uh, not so veiled about Marilyn Monroe, which people did not like, especially after she died. So, but in it, he's very raw about himself. And here's what he has to say about himself. For many years, I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are, or smart. Then, what a good lover. Then, a good father. Finally, how wise, or how powerful, or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that one moved on an upward path towards some elevation where, God knows what, I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway. I think now, that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, the pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which of course is another way of saying despair. Arthur Miller, as far as I know, he died a, a skeptic, not a Christian. But profound insight. And when people say, why do you quote other authors instead of the Bible? This is why. Because they see things. And he's not right, but do you see what he's getting at? He, even Arthur Miller, this playwright, death of a salesman, he's married to Marilyn Monroe, like in the 60s and 50s. That's pretty impressive in the world standards. And he says all his life he thought he was doing something. I'm building a reputation, a catalog, uh, a fame, I'm, all these notches in the bedpost. I'm doing all this. And he assumed that eventually there would be a, a payoff. There would be something, he says, a verdict anyway, a god or somebody who would say well done, or terribly done. He said, but then I realized there's nothing. And when he believes that there is no end, no fifth final act to your life, because listen, if you don't believe in at least a God, preferably the biblical God, and I'll explain why that's the only one that makes sense, then I'm sorry, you have nothing to look forward to but despair. At best, what you're doing is fooling yourself into thinking your life has meaning. You're doing what he says, which is your, uh, where is that beautiful, terrible line? 
this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. Who are you proving yourself to? Who are you trying to be a good father for? Your kids, they're going to forget you and they're going to die. Your memory will be wiped out. Everything will go. So ultimately, he says Arthur Miller, our lives are, you, we're, it's despair. We're just kind of killing time until we die. It's pretty miserable, isn't it? And yet, this is exactly, I think, why John is weeping. Because if there is no final act, if no one opens that scroll and says, this is why you suffered, this is why you served that Redeemer for 17 years and then you're off somewhere in the Newfoundland, this is why you, went, why you were joyous, why you had pain, why there is war, there needs to be a payoff, there needs to be an explanation, otherwise it ends miserably. And if there is no answer for why your child was killed, if there's no answer as to why you could never keep a marriage, if there's no answer as to why you could never get your life in order, or maybe why you had a blessed life while everybody else seemed to not, if there's no explanation for that, it's kind of unfulfilling, isn't it? How would you like Shakespeare if, it died, if every play ended in Act 4? Macbeth never gets his comeuppance. Hamlet never vindicates his father. King Lear just dies in the wilderness or something. He just disappears. And this is what life is. So this is why John is weeping. If there is no final act, start weeping. It's the only honest thing you can do, is weep. So John is in despair. Now, that quickly moves into hope. There's this hope, and the angel doesn't wait very long. He jumps in, in verses 5 to 8 anyway, and he says, don't weep. Behold. Stop weeping. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, and he can open the scrolls. And then um, he takes the scroll. Actually, before he does that, John turns around expecting to see a lion, and he sees a lamb that looks like it was killed, which is at best psychologically trippy. But, uh, uh, but, but it's, it's incredibly profound what happens, and we're going to get there. But he sees this. And then the moment that this lamb takes the scroll from the hand of the one on the throne, all the creatures and elders fall on their face and worship. And when they do, they have a harp, so there's musical worship. Sorry, that's how I play a harp, I guess. <laughs> I've never played a harp. Um, and they're holding the bowl of incense, but it's not incense. It's the prayers of the saints, the, the Christians. And that's something that's hard. I remember reading this as a non-Christian thinking, so only the prayers of Christians are heard by God and, and kept and cherished? Boy, that seems like what he's saying, which is difficult, but I understand it. Let me move on now. So this is the scene. So why is it that at that moment, God, the, the angel says, now you don't need to weep. There is hope. And the reason is because everything in this scene is showing you that there is one who can open the scroll. There is a final act, but it's only in the form of this one man. And this is the hard part in this pluralistic world. I'm sorry, there's no other way to get to this final act. There's no other salvation for you outside of this one. Okay? And I know people don't like this exclusive nature, but listen, let me be very clear. You're all exclusive. We're all exclusive. When somebody says, Carl, to say only Jesus is the only way to salvation, it's so narrow. Hold on. You're being narrow by saying he's not the only way. You're suggesting somebody else is or some other way is. We're all being narrow. And it's not even mean. If I have cancer and the doctor says, you're going to die unless you get this treatment, I wouldn't say, you narrow-minded fool. I wouldn't say that. I would say, thank you for your wisdom showing me the only way to be saved. It's not narrow-minded. That's a trick of people who disagree with the lamb, and they want to try to avoid the conversation. They want to push it away and make it seem invalid. It's not invalid. There's one way. But that's okay. Let's move on. When he is called the lion and the root, 
These are messianic titles that in the first century every Jew would have known. They would have said, ah, yes, that's the Messiah. And it draws from Genesis 49 when Jacob blesses his kids and he talks about Judah and he calls him a lion's cub and he's going to be a ruler and so on. And then Isaiah 11 that speaks about the stump of Jesse, which is the Hebrew word for root, stump of Jesse. And when you put these together, it's interesting because the image that comes out of both of those prophecies about the Messiah are that he is going to be powerful and wise. So in power, Isaiah says that he is the spirit of might. He will strike the earth. He'll kill the wicked. He's going to judge. He's going to rule. Um, and then, he, but that's not all. He also says not only is he powerful, but he'll have the spirit of wisdom, counsel, understanding, knowledge. He'll rule with righteousness, equity, faithfulness. And so the image of the Messiah in the Old Testament is powerful and wise. So when John turns around and he sees a lamb covered in eyes and horns, remember, symbolism. What is a horn symbolic of in the Old Testament? Power. Always power. What does the number seven mean? Perfect, complete. So this lamb, who he thinks should be a lion, it's a lamb, but he is yet all-powerful. And the lamb becomes powerful by being, or the, yeah, the lion becomes most powerful by being a lamb. And so he's powerful, but what are the eyes? Wisdom, insight. So this lamb, who you think is a little lamb, is all-powerful and all-wise. And so, when John turns around and sees this, that the one who opens the scrolls, the one who controls all destiny, and as I said in the second sermon of this series, which you all memorized, is John is saying very clearly that this Christ is the archi and the telos, the beginning and the end, the destiny. He is not just one who opens the scrolls that gives you meaning, he is meaning. He is this. So when John turns and sees, he says, okay, there's hope. One is going to open it, and not just one, but one who is powerful enough to accomplish what's on the scroll and wise enough to do it in a way that presumably everything will go well. So there's hope that he has. But we move even more, because quickly after this hope, everything bursts into worship. There's singing. Um, here's a strange fact. Do you know nowhere in the entire Bible does it say angels sing? Somebody asked about this during our Bible study, and I thought, no, surely there's a spot. There isn't. The only closest you get is in Job 38, when, it, when the word is translated as sing, but it actually means to speak as well. And the angel, or the, the creatures and the elders sing here, but then every time, once the angels come in, it says they said. It's interesting. I don't know what to make of that. But let's move on. That's not part of the sermon. It's a bonus. Um, <laughs> but look at what happens. But before we jump in, there's a problem. See, John has despair, but now he has hope because someone can open the scrolls. But there's a problem. There always is. And the problem comes in the form of what we call a catch-22. We probably all know what the term means, but let me explain where it actually comes from. In this book, Catch-22 by Joseph Heller, there is um, lots of stuff. It's happening in the, in the military. And at one point, a, a pilot goes to the, the company doctor and he says, listen, my bunkmate, Orr, is crazy. You, he, he shouldn't be flying. How does he get out of flying dangerous missions? And the doctor says, very simple, it's very easy. He just has to ask me. He says, really? That's all he has to do is ask you? He says, yes, but there's a catch. Catch 22. It's, a, it's an article in their law. And it says, here's the catch. If you are insane, you won't know that something is dangerous. So if you ask me to get out of something because it's dangerous, you prove you're not insane. So it's a catch. You ask me to get out, you have to stay in. But if you stay in, you must be insane. 
Catch-22. And this is where we get the term from. And we find ourselves here, and all, all of humanity finds ourselves in this position, that we are stuck in a catch-22. We desperately want justice, so much so that we revolt, we burn things, we break them. I remember reading a study by, I think it was Harvard, that nine-month-old babies show a desire for justice. Nine months old, you watch, let the nine-month-olds watch a puppet hit another puppet, and they get mad. But when you hit that puppet who is hitting the others, they're even nine months old, show, uh, show uh, they get happier. They want to see justice. <laughs> Everyone wants justice. But here's the catch. We desperately want a judge, but when we find we have the judge, we realize we're on the wrong side of him. That you deserve, if there's a judge who is all-powerful and all-seeing, you can't escape justice. You're all guilty. And so we're stuck. We want a judge, but we can't bear the judge. And the reason that there is hope that turns into joy is precisely because John turns and sees not just the lamb, but a lamb that was slain. And not just a lamb that was slain, but a lamb that was slain for him. And he realizes that in this moment, you're seeing justice and mercy meet. The only place justice and mercy meet are at the cross. When God says, as a lion, no, I will not tolerate sin. It must be paid for. And then mercy, he bears it. And the first song that the, people, that the elders and, the, and the, um, the creatures sing says, worthy are you, for you were slain. So there, he's worthy not because he's great and powerful, which he is. But you're worthy for you were slain because he chose to die. And here's where as a skeptic, I used to say things like, come on, if this God is all-powerful, why is it that he couldn't just forgive us? Why go through this? Why go through this cosmic child abuse of killing his son? Why do it? And there's, see, again, these arguments sound clever, but they're not. And here's why. If you have to go stand before a judge because your child, let's use, I'm using extreme. Let's suppose your child is beaten and raped, and you go stand before a judge looking for justice, and the judge says, you know what? I'm just going to forgive him. How does that feel? Is justice served? No. Forgiveness, we'd, throw, we'd run that judge out of town because justice cannot be served by forgiving a debt. It must be absorbed. Somebody must pay the debt. And so at the cross, see, it sounds very airy-fairy and nice to say, just forgive the debt, but that's not justice because the person who has suffered in this world, there needs to be justice for that. There must be. And so at the cross we see Christ goes, he says, no, the sin must be paid for, justice, but then mercy, the lamb, I will bear it. I will bear it for them. And for this reason, you see this eruption of praise. Look at the first song. You were slain, by your blood you have ransomed people of God. And then the next song builds on that. Because you are, you are the lion and the lamb, creation then gives everything to him, right? Because you were slain for, for me, for us, we now give you everything. We hold nothing back from you. And the last one is they affirm his eternal reign. Because you died, we give you everything and we say you deserve to be on the throne forever. Who else would we want? But that's not actually the best part here. The, the best part I find, this is where we'll close, is look at who sings. And it builds and it builds. I said we're going to sort of close. It builds and it builds. The first song or the first statement is sung by the four creatures and the 24 elders. The second one, you see them and the angels join. And the third one is everybody, all creation. Everything above, 
I mean, last week, uh, Wyatt spoke about the geography of, of, of the Bible, how it speaks of above the earth, the earth, and under the earth. It's not meant to be a geographical textbook, but the idea is everything worships. And it builds and builds and builds in a harmony that eventually echoes throughout all creation because of the cross. Now, there's this old, that's not that old, but it's a play called Amadeus by Paul Schaefer. You guys have probably seen the movie. Um, I think it won a few Academy Awards, I'm not sure. And in it, Mozart is speaking to um, the, arch, or not the, the emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And he's trying to explain what he's going to do with this, um, this play, this opera called The Marriage of Figaro, which now we know is very famous. But it was very hard sell because it takes place in a brothel, in a Turkish brothel, which is difficult sell in the ancient 300 years ago. And he says, but listen, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, at one point, I'm going to have a couple arguing. They're going to be singing a duet. And then their maid is going to join. It'll become a trio. Then the valet will come in or the valet will come in and he'll start singing. It'll be a quartet. And that will go from a quartet to a quintet, a sextet, a septet, an octet, and so on and so on. And he says, how, do you, how long can I, can I do this? And the emperor says, I don't know, six minutes? He said, 20. I'm going to keep people singing and building, adding one person continually for 20 minutes. Unheard of in the operatic world. And eventually he gets so excited, Mozart, that he says this, Sire, only opera can do this. In a play, if more than one person speaks at the same time, it's just noise. No one can understand a word. But with music, with music, you can have 20 individuals all talking at once, and it's not noise. It's perfect harmony. Isn't that marvelous? Now, he's right. But what we see in an opera is somebody has written this, and he's trying to build you to have joy. You get caught up into it. What we're seeing in Revelation is this almost spontaneous eruption of joy that comes. And it's not just a joy, but when you see the lion, that you deserve to be crushed, but then you see the lamb, what the Spirit then does if you're a Christian or you become one, is he drills into your heart and he sets up a well, a reservoir of joy. And out of the gratitude of being saved, you become someone who then sings and sings. And you can sing to an old song, to a new song. It doesn't matter who's singing. If there's worshipers, we should be able to join them. Drums, no drums, harmonicas. I once watched a guy with an accordion for two hours. Horrible music in my head, but I worshipped because people of God were worshipping. And all of this will lead to this in my final, this is where we're really close, this final quote. In The Lord of the Rings, there's a scene in the last book, I don't think you can do it in the movie, but in the last book, there's a scene where Gandalf, this wizard, is with Pippin, one of the, the hobbits, and it's a very dark time. Everything is kind of gloomy. And out of nowhere, Gandalf, the, the wizard, starts to laugh. And the hobbit doesn't understand. He's like, what's so funny? Like, it's pretty miserable. We're going to die. And Gandalf, uh, this is the response. Yet in the wizard's face, he saw at first only lines of care and sorrow. Though as he looked more intently, he perceived that under all there, all there was, uh, sorry, under all, that under all, there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. And this is what the cross does for Christians. If you are not a worshiper, I've said it before, you're not going to survive chapter 6 to 19. You're going to fall away. You'll get stuck maybe in nostalgia and amnesia. You'll get, something will happen. It's from this fountain of mirth. But that fountain of joy that you're set with isn't just enough to keep you green in the drought. It ought to bubble up so that it threatens to set the entire church, home, community, city, and world 
a light. And this is the joy that you see rippling through creation in chapter 5. So it's no wonder that we end here before we get into what's going to come when the seals open. If we are not that sort of a people, the church is going to struggle, not because Christ is going to forget it. This church will only close or grow when Christ says so, not when I become a cleverer preacher, not when the music becomes more special, not with Reed or without Reed, with John, without John, none of it. Christ is king. But if we can be a people that worship out of the gratitude of the cross, the world will be set on fire. It's very simple. It's not difficult. And yet it's incredibly difficult. But it's there for us. If you're a Christian, this is yours. If you're not a Christian, what are you waiting for? Run. Run or weep. I would rather see you weep and become a Christian than see you happy and never become one. Let's pray.